You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. The Case for Open Borders by Harry Binswanger. The Case for Open Borders. This is uh, half old and half new. I spoke on this topic last uh, Ocon in making the connection between border control and other controls, such as gun control, economic controls, political controls. It's all part of the same thing. But we're going to get into some very new material uh, as we finish up with the review of the old, which for some of you won't be a review. The first logical question is, what are open borders? And the basic way of answering questions like that is to perform a differentiation. So what are closed borders? This is what I'm against. This is a closed border. This is a recent picture of immigrants from on the Texas border, I believe, with Mexico, but who are from all over South America. Speaks for itself. Children with a border patrol guard pacing in front of them. They've been apprehended. People on the outside trying to get in. See the man with the gun? This is not from Nazi Germany. This is from America or from the gate to America. And this horrible thing, I quote from the Wall Street Journal. Temperatures in San Antonio rose to 103 degrees Monday when a passerby heard a weak cry for help coming from migrants trapped inside a tractor trailer and called 911. First responders found, quote, stacks of bodies and no signs of water inside the tractor. 16 survivors, including four children, quote, were hot to the touch, quote, and, quote, suffering from heat stroke, heat exhaustion. Three perished after arriving at the hospital. The dead included migrants from Mexico, Guatemala, and Honduras. So what are open borders? They mean not that it means, sorry, yeah, it means not closed borders. Now notice this map of Texas. There's a red arrow and a line around the closed border, and there's a green arrow going down from Oklahoma. Same state, Texas, has an open border with Oklahoma, and here's what you see instead of those bars coming from Oklahoma. Welcome to Texas. Drive friendly the Texas way. Now, it should say, welcome to America. And that should be the only thing. There's no guardhouse there to get from uh, 
Oklahoma into Texas. There shouldn't be anything but a sign at every port of entry, every inch of the border that we share with Mexico or Canada. And that is a radical position, but I'm going to move you towards it if you're not there already. I thought this talk was going to anger a lot of people, but unfortunately, I came up with a way of conceptualizing that I don't think is going to anger a lot of people. I think you're going to be on my side, or perhaps we'll be on both on the same side by the time I finish, because I, I have a new understanding of this. So let's go through the positive case for open borders, then we'll get to collectivist an, uh, objections answered and the real and the ideal and the conclusion. The positive case for open borders begins with some words that may be familiar to you. All men are created equal. Not all Americans are created equal, not all residents of British North America are created equal. All men are created equal. With certain unalienable rights, you see what I've dot, dot, dotted, endowed by their creator with. It should be endowed by their nature with. But anyway, the idea is that all men are created equal with certain unalienable rights. All men have rights. Even Mexicans have rights. Hard to believe, isn't it? But think of it this way. You have rights when you want to go to Mexico. Among these rights are life, liberty, property, my addition, and the pursuit of happiness. Now let's turn to Ayn Rand after Jefferson. What is the right to life? It means the freedom to take all the action required by the nature of a rational being for the support, the furtherance, the fulfillment, and the enjoyment of his own life. That's from man's rights. The right to liberty, quoting from Harry Binswanger at Ocon 2022, the right to liberty, what does the right to liberty mean that's different from freedom? I think the right to liberty means the right to be free from governmental coercion. So the force that your neighbor can use upon you is not an issue of the right to liberty, it's just an issue of your rights in general. I think liberty is political liberty, and it means freedom from governmental coercion. Now I mean, by coercion, I mean initiated physical force. The right to property, going back to Ayn Rand, is the right to gain, to keep, to use, and dispose of material values. It includes, before I go, let me go back to that. It includes the right to use your property to sell it to a Mexican. It includes the right to rent it to a Latvian. It includes the right to let a Ukrainian stay there on your land or in your home uh, if it's yours for a period to be determined by you. So the right to property of American citizens is jeopardized by controls on immigration, interfered with, violated, infringed 
by immigration laws. And of course, those of us who own homes realize, don't we, that if there were more immigration, the price of our homes would go up. The value of it would go up because the demand for housing would go up. The right to the pursuit of happiness means man's right to live for himself, to choose what constitutes his own private, personal, individual happiness, and to work for its achievement so long as he respects the same right in others. Now, this is not from man's rights. It's from textbook of Americanism, <clears throat> because that's where she went into this. Now, as I <clears throat> pointed out last time, there cannot be preventive law, meaning you cannot arrest someone because he might do something when you have no evidence that he will. And the fact that he comes from Mozambique is not evidence that he's going to beat you up or rob you or use force against you. <clears throat> that remains true if Mozambique is fairly backward, which I guess it is. So to use force against him, whether you're talking about your own force or the force of your agent, the government, he must be presenting an objective threat of force. Now, there are two things in there, objective and threat. The threat of force is force. It's not, force is not just laying hands on a person and dragging him away. It's also pointing a gun at him and saying, come this way or I'll kill you. So obviously the threat of force can be force. And it is when it's objective that uh, a person would be in fear of destruction, loss of a value of direct physical con uh, uh, contact without his consent if he does not follow what his, he's being told to do. Now there are, I went into some detail in other places about the standards, the legal standards for what is an objective threat of force. This comes up because people say, well look, there are criminals and rapists in the immigrant caravans. There are terrorists. There are people with diseases and disease as we've seen, is a threat of force if it's uh, contacting you and, and gives you the disease. That's physical contact through the agency of the other person without your consent, damaging physical contact. So, of course, infecting someone with a disease is harming him. It's physical force. So people say there's a risk of disease, there's a clear, uh, sorry, there's a, a risk of criminality. There's a risk of terrorism and maybe uh, all kinds of risks that you can think up that you would put in the category of force. But those are statistical risks. And I'm not denying that they exist. A certain percentage of immigrants will probably commit crimes. And a certain percent of them are gonna be sick and infect other people. So 
Why can't we screen them at the border? Why can't we stop them for, for protecting Americans' rights against this onslaught? Because that's a collective threat. It's a statistical threat out of the groups. Do you have any reason to think that Jose right here is going to rob you? He's at the border. He's one of those people reaching across through the bars. Do you have any reason to think that he is in a different situation than the guy in Poughkeepsie that you pass on the street? Well, he comes from Mexico. Uh-uh. That is not enough to establish probable cause. So the real test here on, these, on this whole issue of what's an objective threat and how much can you interfere with a person at the borders, how much can you interfere with a person here on the street? In, we're in Washington, D.C., right? Um, some of the characters out there do seem threatening. Okay, so the police have standards for what is reasonable suspicion of criminal intent. But if you go to the border or you go to Reagan National uh, or Dulles International and look at the people coming in from foreign countries, you don't have that about them. So the standards are the same at the border as in the interior. You can stop people at the border under the same terms that you can stop them in Racine or Paducah or any place in the United States. There has to be limits. There has to be reason to think there's an objective threat before you can do that. So I've covered those both in uh, other lectures at OCONS and on my website. And I think that it's pretty clear that uh, the principles are pretty clear, even if you want to argue about the exact application at the border. Again, this is what we're dealing with. This is what I'm against. Third, collectivist objections. Now, I hope none of you have these objections, but this is the kind you know, that you have to deal with. This is what the majority objections are. It's our country. We can set the rules for who comes in. Really? It's not your country. It's your land that you own, and you can set the rules for who goes on your land. If you've got a homeowners association of voluntarily agreeing people, you can decide by vote or whatever other mechanism you've contracted for who you will let into the gated community. <clears throat> but you don't own my land, and I don't own your land. What does it mean it's our country? That gets to the next issue. Well, we got to maintain our sovereignty. If you took the Binswanger strategy, you would be surrendering the United States to an influx of immigrants that would, um, we, we would no longer be a country. No, sovereignty is not ownership. 
the fact that the government has sovereignty over the uh, territory of the U.S. means it has jurisdiction. It means American law is enforced in that area, not Mexican law, not Canadian law, not Sharia law. It means the law and the police that operate, that keep the monopoly on the use of force, is the American one. But that doesn't mean the government owns your home. Doesn't mean the government owns somebody's farmland. It doesn't mean that the government owns the roads. The government doesn't own the roads. It operates them on the behalf of the taxpayers. It doesn't mean that the government owns the hotels. So sovereignty if you take the collectivism out of it, is an issue of what law is enforced in this area. So it has nothing to do with borders, with who comes in and who goes out. It merely says if you set foot on American soil, you are subject to American law, which is precisely what the immigrants want to be. They want to stop being subject to the anarchy of Central America, where drug lords enforce their rule, and they want to be free from the, uh, uh, the statism of Mexico, which takes from them and does not allow them to advance. They want to be subject to a law that protects their rights. That's why they want to be here. So there's no issue, if you're an individualist, of sovereignty implying that we vote on who gets to come on my land. You don't. And then there's the ultimate collectivism. I don't like those people. They're thieves and rapists, said Trump. You just, they're not like us, they look different, and they're no good. That is just collectivism. And it is the lowest form, xenophobia or racism ascribing to the individual moral and intellectual qualities on the basis of the group, the racial group, or the national group to which he belongs. Now, I don't think these are a big issue here, and I also am not covering really the economic argument they take our jobs. You, you know the answer to that. But here's the new stuff now. Let's get into the juicy stuff. The real and the ideal, not a great headline for telling you what it's about, but a good rhyming uh, uh, short. It's what I have in mind is yes, but. Ideally, in a laissez-faire society, sure, then we, we could just have welcome to America. But that's not the situation today. There are all kinds of reasons why we can't do that today. So it's yes, but in today's context, first, it would hurt us economically. Now, that's not just they'll take our job. It's going to increase the welfare burden. They're going to be in the emergency rooms of the hospitals. They're going to uh, have to, their kids are going to have to be educated. They're going to have to use the public schools. 
It's going to take money out of our pocketbook, and we have a right not to have that money taken out of our pocketbook. Yeah, if the government takes it out, you have a right not to do that, but it's not the fault of the immigrants. But that's not really my argument. But you should, you know, a lot of you believe this, right? And it's not crazy. It's not collectivism. I don't want the welfare rolls expanded either. I don't want to lose money because there's an ideal of open immigration. I wouldn't be losing money if there weren't welfare, if there weren't public education, right? So it makes sense. Crime would increase. Now, I think this one is actually false, but I'm not going to argue that. <clears throat> Crime would increase is another widely held viewpoint, whether it's true or false. They vote Democratic. And that goes along with it would destroy our culture. So this is all I can think of, of the non-collectivist, you know, our culture means the present. It doesn't mean our collectively owned culture. It means it would destroy the philosophy, the sense of life of, in our case, of America. Now, why do I say in our case? Those of you who are not Canadian probably don't know that when the North Atlantic free trade agreement was up for discussion some 30 years ago, and it was free trade with Canada, there was a huge outcry in Canada, we'll lose our culture. We'll lose our Canadian identity if there's free trade. And this was not about immigration. This is about free trade, but it's the same principle. We've got to preserve our culture. Of course, no one could say what Canadian culture was, you know, to be different from the U.S. I did find one thing that they have that we don't and should have. Butter tarts. <laughs> they are fantastic, and I don't think you can get them in you. But it went through, and nothing changed in the Canadian culture. So when I say our culture, in our case, America, each country thinks that bringing in foreign goods, foreign people, is going to destroy their culture. Okay, so what, how do we approach this? How do we approach Because they're not like the other ones. It's our country, we get to say who comes in. I don't like the way they look. It's not like those, they're, they're reasonable objections. Now, I'm so tempted to argue the statistics. I've got statistics to rebut the economic argument, to rebut the crime argument, um, even to rebut the voting Democratic. And I want to tell you right now, but I'll save it for the question. It's not statistic. It's the issue is the role of principles. I'm not saying the issue is to be principled. I'm saying the issue is the role. What principles are for? What ideals are for? Now, the principles here are rights. That's what I opened as the positive case. Pragmatism says, well, in the present context, this is a situation we're in. We're in a jam. We have to set rights aside and be practical. Yeah, yeah, there, it's all good for utopia, but 
We're not living in utopia. We have to be practical, and we just can't have more immigration. And the other side is the rationalist context droppers. Look, open immigration is an issue of rights, so we've got to have it. We've got to have it now, and we must not let anything stand in our way. We don't have to answer any of these objections because it's a right and it has to be respected. Now, that's the way I felt <laughs> until I read a few days ago Ayn Rand talking about in uh, I, uh, Robert Mayhew's collection, uh, Ayn Rand Answers, talking about how we get to, let's say, fair. And she opened by saying that you can't just willy-nilly start stripping off controls. She said that would be dictatorial. It would be arbitrary. Really? Um, and then I started thinking about it. And I realized both of those sides, the pragmatists and the rationalists, are wrong. The ideal is for navigating the real, meaning the goal sets the standard to guide us in the direction we take. That image, I think, captures it. The goal is, in this case, unfortunately, the North Pole, or the magnetic North Pole, but it makes the, mag it, you know, makes the compass needle swing in a certain way and gives you a direction. So let's do a thought experiment to show what I have in mind. Suppose the United States were split down the middle. Reichsland was the left half with the dollar sign on there. Reichsland has laissez-faire capitalism, complete freedom, liberty, rights are respected, and open immigration of the kind welcome to Reichsland. No border patrol, no inspection, no, you know, that's the perfect ideal, the utopian thing. The other side is what we have now. I'm not saying the other side is Nazi Germany. The other side is today in the rest of the U.S. So now ask yourself, what would you do if that happened tomorrow? Would you say, well, no, open immigration has these problems, it hurts my standard of living, it blah, blah, blah. I don't want to go there. Remember, you have to have the package, because the ideal is versus the context dropper. The ideal is the whole, rights protected in every area. I know what I would do. Uh, I wouldn't finish this talk. I would run out and get a bus or a hitchhiker, get somehow to live in laissez-faire capitalism now. I mean, that would be unbelievable. I and mean, that's why we don't believe it. <laughs> but what is, it, what is the point that it makes? That if you have the ideal, the full ideal, not some out of context, absolutely, you want it. Most people would want it when they saw it. Now, you'd have to fight altruism because they'd start destroying it right away. Well, we got to. 
But I'm abstracting from that. I'm asking, if you could have the ideal, wouldn't you want it? And I think everybody in this room desperately wants it. You want to live in capitalism, in freedom, no controls, with open immigration. So the point of the ideal is to give you that direction. We want to move toward, not away from, that ideal. That is the function of defining the principle of rights and stating that that's the ideal, is to not say, oh, well, we don't have that, so let's, let's muddle through. That, let's move in that direction. Let's not move backwards. How do we do that? Well, I was fortunate enough to hear from Ayn Rand, which she tossed off once in casual conversation. I have the idea of paired decontrol. Paired decontrol. Paired decontrol, she explained, is the the release of controls in one area matched by the release of controls in a corresponding area so as to not harm anyone, to not make anyone worse off. So let's look at how paired decontrol can solve the problem that the reasonable non-collectivists object to. It's going to hurt your pocketbook, right? Okay, so in 2023, we double immigration and cut spending 20%. Do you have any idea what wealth would spring from not destroying 20% of people's productivity every year? This would way outweigh the cost. Let's say, you know, that some of them go on welfare. Some of them need uh, emergency care in the hospital, but you've cut spending 20%. So some combination of your taxes and your inflation is 20% less than it was the preceding year. I'm not talking about what Reagan did. I'm not talking about cutting the growth in Spain. You know, so, oh, we were going to raise the budget from Three million, three trillion to four trillion, but let's only raise it to three point eight trillion from three trillion, and we've cut it twenty percent. I'm not sure that's twenty percent. Yeah, two. Yeah, that's right. No, I'm talking about if it's. It happens to be six point eight two trillion now, going back one fifth of that to what is that about five trillion? And all that wealth is available to be invested, to be consumed, it would you know, just swamp any uh, immigration thing. Then in 2023, you double immigration and abolish the Energy Department and the EPA. Now these are examples, right? I just made them up last night. So you can maybe come up with a better one, and economists should figure out, but you, you're starting to get the picture? Double immigration and abolish the Energy Department and the Environmental Protection Agency. Do you realize how much damage 
those two departments do to our lives. I mean, it's phenomenal. Oh, I'll put another one in, that, uh, maybe after I do this one. Double immigration in 2025 and start phasing out Social Security. Social Security is not just immoral, it's the biggest wealth destroyer I can think of in the U.S. economy because every dollar that is taxed and, and put in for Social Security is spent right away. It's consumed. And if it wasn't in Social Security, it would be in savings that would be invested, i.e. in expanding production. So every one of those trillion dollars or whatever that every year goes into the Social Security from the tax is a dollar spent for, oh, let's be optimistic, for bread for poor people who eat it and then it's gone. If it were invested, those poor people would be hired, particularly if they're immigrants coming in or poor, and they would produce more than the bread they eat in return. That would be why they're hired. They're hired because they can produce more than you have to pay them. That's called profit. So if we could start phasing out, and by phasing out I mean we tell the 25-year-olds, uh, you'll never get a dime. You're going to pay, but you're never going to get a dime of this. Uh, and the 30-year-olds, you'll get a dime. <laughs> and, uh, but, but by the time you get to the 55-year-olds, you say, well, you'll get 90%, and the 60 and over should get 100 because they planned on it. It has to be phased out in that way. But with immigrants, you say to them, you went into the country, you're reaching through, you're dying in trucks. How about we let you in, but you will not qualify for social, we'll give you a social security card. You can go get a job, but you'll never get any benefit from it. You're like the 25-year-old dimension, or maybe the 20-year-olds. Would you be willing to do that? And of course, they'd be delighted to do that. So we could begin um, that, and I already forgot the extra one I just thought of. That, but you, if you sit down and think about the ways that the government slices and dices you, it would be very easy to start compensating with paired decontrol for any increase in immigration, and you would have an end to the labor shortage that we have. Every store, we're hiring, we're hiring, we're hiring, call us, take, take your phone and use this Q code or whatever it's called, and we'll, we want you, we need workers, and, and we're all delayed, right? Flights are canceled. Now, you're saying, well, wait a minute, in those immigrants, they're not pilots. Yeah, there are, but it doesn't matter because if the bottom rungs, if they're all in the bottom rungs, they come in and it takes, it allows the present Americans in the uh, bottom rung to move to the second rung and the people who were in the second rung to move to the third rung. So it redounds throughout the system in a good way when there's enough uh, labor that you can hire, even if it's unskilled. How about crime? 
Well, here we've got a killer argument. Increase immigration and legalize drugs. I mean, it's insane to say I'm worried about the one in a hundred Mexicans coming in who uh, beat up people in their gang or who carry knives and they're, they're going to break into your house. But drugs, which accounts for like 80% of all criminal cases, oh, well, that we leave alone. So if you've ever served on juries, as I did in, in New York, almost every case is drug, criminal case is drug-related. Not all of them, but almost all of them are drug-related. All that crime would go away instantly if you legalize it. I assume you know why, but let me state for the record, the only reason there are drug cartels, drug gangs, uh, drug lords, drug trade and crimes is because the rate of profit is not allowed to go down to the average. If drugs were legal, they would sell for the same price as aspirin or Coca-Cola. And you don't find uh, guys hanging around schoolyards trying to interest kids in buying aspirin. Or newspapers, oh, newspapers are artificially high, actually. <clears throat> the average rate of profit is what competition brings prices down to, because if it's more than that, capital flows into the, you know, you want more profit, right? You invest. You look for the, what, the fields that are paying 12% when the average is 6%, say, and you put your money there. And that expands those businesses, that expands supply, higher supply, same demand, prices fall. And when do you stop doing that? Well, when it's the same rate of profit as anything else you could put your money into. So it's all about profits in drugs created by illegalizing them. <clears throat> so I have some other things, but they pale in, in uh, comparison. Declare amnesty for all current illegals so that there wouldn't be, they wouldn't be living in the shadows and be susceptible to being used for criminal activity and getting into gangs and doing it because they can't appeal to the police, really. Decontrol guns, right? That would bring crime down if we're right in our ideas about that. But those really pale in comparison with legalizing drugs would just cut crime, I don't know, at least in half, probably 80%. Uh, did I skip the voting? Oh, right, right. there's no actual problem with regard to voting because we just don't give them citizenship. Voting is not a basic human right. Voting is a mechanism, a proper mechanism, Peter Schwartz has convinced me in long conversation, a necessary mechanism to represent you so that you know that the people in power are subject to some discipline in protecting your rights. But it is not like life, liberty, property, pursuit of happiness. And you simply say, you know, we'll let you in, but you're not going to be given citizenship either ever or for a long period of time. 
Now, if we were following the other pair D controls, by 25 years, we would be so much more attractive and better a country. We wouldn't be Reichsland yet, but we would be back to, let's say, the US in 1925 or something. It would be is so much more attractive that the status parties would have no leg to stand upon, except that one terrible leg of altruism. So it presupposes that somebody is arguing for the right thing. Um, but I can pair some decontrols with that. And campaign finance laws. That's what prevents wealthy people from using their money as they would like to openly without subterfuge and manipulation to support the candidates maybe who will protect their property, maybe. But those are wrong and I suspect that if they were repealed, it would work to the benefit of the pro-freedom side. And mail-in ballots, except for military overseas. That's what they, I think, were originally intended for, and there's no excuse. Uh, I'm in favor of making it quite difficult to vote. I, this, that, this is ex cathedra, is that the right word? Uh, not uh, part of the lecture, but I would like to see a poll tax of, say, $100. If you don't give a damn, if you're not willing to pay to vote or you know, to go to the polls and stand in line, that means you don't have a strong view, and we don't want your vote. There is no collective consciousness that is assembled by getting everybody's consciousness together in one act. So there's no reason for mail-in ballots. Uh, preserve our culture. Double immigration and have tax credits for education. Because where does our culture get destroyed? Not by immigrants. Immigrants that come in, you know, the, you think of who they are. They're not the ones writing editorials for the New York Times or doing the news on CNN and poisoning the atmosphere with wokeism and so forth. It's the colleges, it's the universities, it's the educated people. Why is Hollywood a center of this? Because the people there are more educated, they're in the arts, they are getting more ideas fed to them from, for longer. So uh, tax credits for education was Ayn Rand's proposal to break the education monopoly of the government. So that is one thing we could do. Then we need to end federal aid to education. In fact, then abolish the Department of Education. And finally, which I didn't put up here, give to the Ayn Rand Institute. That's not a pair D control, but it's a meta pair, meta level pair D control. So let's now turn to the conclusion, and I'm not sure how my time is going, uh, but I think it's about time for the conclusion. Objectivists and open borders. 
we need to draw worldwide to get new intellectuals. And in fact, we are. And we're having tremendous success. It's not a few of our junior fellows at ARI. It's not a you know, third of the junior fellows at ARI. It's the vast majority of junior fellows at ARI are not native-born people. The new intellectuals that we're finding are largely from the world. There's two reasons from outside America. There's two reasons for this. One is that there's just so, such a bigger pool to draw from. We have 330 million people here. There's 7 billion people in the world. So there's a larger uh, talent pool, you know, if one in a million has the brains and values to become an objectivist intellectual, you need to draw on all the world to get them. And uh, the other reason is a man named John Dewey, who was an American and destroyed our educational system, and more than destroyed, he set it in reverse so that it actually makes people incapable of thinking rather than just doesn't supply them with knowledge. Some people say, oh, well, they're indoctrinating our kids. Well, I wish. I mean, indoctrination at least presupposes they have a mind. Although I think what they're doing now is just teaching them things to chant. That seems to be the level. It's not like really they have a doctrine that they believe. They're just given slogans. Uh, I'm, before I get to that, the, um, you could say, well, in the age of the internet, do they really need to come to the US in order to be, learn to be new intellectuals? Well, it's about five times better if they do. If you can sit down with the senior objectivist intellectual and talk to them and, and go to their homes maybe and see how they live and become like, you know, Leonard Peikoff was with Ayn Rand, you get a lot more than if there's a Zoom meeting with other people and objectivist intellectuals once a week, twice a week. That's, that's great, and that's our hope for the future is that Zoom does reach out and provide some value, but it'd be a hell of a lot better if there were in-person training. Now, I want to end with Ayn Rand's uh, statement on immigration. There's only one. Strangely, there's only one statement in all the corpus, and it's in uh, Robert Mayhew's Ayn Rand answers from a question period from the 1973 Fort Hall Forum. And I was there, and I heard this question. And the question was a little longer, and it had to do with, you're in favor of self-interest, so aren't you? anti-immigration. The way that it's phrased here, trimmed down, is what is your attitude toward immigration? Doesn't open immigration have a negative effect on a country's standard of living? And she says, no one has the right to pursue his self-interest by law or by force, which is what you're suggesting. You want to forbid immigration on the grounds that it lowers your standard of living, which isn't true, though if it were true, you'd still have no right 
to close the borders. You can't claim that anything others may do, for example, simply through competition, is against your self-interest, because he said you're for self-interest. But above all, aren't you dropping a personal context? Huh? But above all, aren't you dropping a personal context? That's Ayn Rand at age 21 from her green card or equivalent when she came into the country. And here she explains the personal context. How could I advocate restricting immigration when I wouldn't be alive today if our borders had been closed? Thank you very much. Not trying to get a standing ovation, but would all those here who are not native-born Americans, whether you're just visiting or you've moved here, would you stand up, all those here? <laughs> I rest my case. Thank you. I mean, we got Ayn Rand, we got Leonard Peikoff, we got your own book, Talt Safani, uh, Anu Seppala, and uh, Ilan Ankar Gatte. No, Ankar's only from Canada, and that's a suburb of New <laughs> But his parents are immigrants. And uh, I asked Anu, and she thought that eight or nine of the top row of people not, not the you know, lower levels of, of uh, workers, but the, the managerial type, eight or nine of them are immigrants. Okay, uh, let's take questions. Betsy? Yes, uh, when, <clears throat> I'd like your thoughts on this. When my father came from Russia in 1912, um, he came to Ellis Island and they screened the immigrants there for diseases. And they also had to have a sponsor, someone who would guarantee that they wouldn't be public charges. Mm -hmm. In his case, that was, was the law. Yeah. yeah. In this case, it was his relative. It, they were relatives. And I believe the same thing occurred when Ayn Rand came to this country. Yeah. Uh, there weren't any quotas or anything at that time, but there was screening. Uh, your thoughts? Uh, I oppose that. I, I don't want any screening. Now, you can surveil, you can look at people, but you can't stop them. For the same reason that if the police stopped you going out of the hotel and said, let me see your papers, can you identify yourself? You would be, and you know, do you have any diseases? Let me, I'm gonna bring a doctor in to look at you. You would be upset, I would be upset, be a violation of civil liberties. And there's the same situation with the immigrants. Now, suppose there's uh, Ebola raging in Angola or something, and uh, you, you think, 
30 or 40 percent of these people could be carrying Ebola. If it's even 10 percent, it's a real threat. Yes, you could screen those people just as if there was Ebola raging in Troy, New York, people leaving Troy could be screened. So it's the principle, again, is that if you've got some evidence, whether the person is at the border or whether the person is in Sheboygan, you can act. But there has to be evidence. It can't just be, well, he's not an American, so maybe he's diseased. What about uh, cases where uh, they're coming from countries we are currently at war with? That's different, yeah. And I'm always asked about Israel. Israel is at war with every country around it. There are rockets lobbed into Israel all the time. There are terrorists marching in. They're all committed to the destruction of Israel, which I think means the killing of every Jew in Israel. I think that's what they mean, what they mean when they say the destruction of Israel. Uh, so that is a state of war. And just as in the country in a state of war, you can take measures to protect against sabotage and so forth that you wouldn't if you weren't at war. At the border, you can certainly, um, particularly if you're a small country, see, we're not, and I tend to be American-centric, but Israel absolutely has to screen at the borders and keep out a lot of people. That's, that's a state of war that's different. I'm glad you asked that because I should have said that. Dr. Finsanger. What? Um, <laughs> Dr. Finsanger. Yes. Um, the, cost, um, the case for open borders does look very compelling. However, in the case that you have one country who wants to implement this policy, and it just happens to be surrounded by countries that, let's say, have a more conservative policy of not wanting to let immigrants in. Mm -hmm. What kind of additional considerations would you take with respect to how this country that is, let's say, at the center and wants to let immigrants in should think before doing it. It might be the case that the external countries, for example, want to imply sanctions on this country because they would see it as some kind of threat that they would take competent workers away from their countries and then take them to this mm -hmm. center, which is more or less how Switzerland sees it right now. You mean with the Ukrainians coming into surrounding countries? Uh, well, that is uh, due to war, uh, but no, uh, basically there's a very high bar for an emergency, which war is. And merely that um, other countries around you uh, are taking in people you don't like and regard as threats is not a reason for you to be up in arms. And um, these countries are going to benefit from taking in refugees. These refugees are uh, 
you see them on the, you know, you see Ukrainians in the press coverage. They're educated, intelligent, upstanding-looking people. And the more, let's, let's have this point on the table. The higher the population density, the faster the economic growth, and the more people want to be part of that density. Shocking thought, isn't it? People want to be where there are crowds. They don't yearn for the open spaces. How do I know this? Because the rent in Manhattan, in Midtown, is higher than anywhere else in the country. So what does that say? That there's a demand for that more than a demand for other, you know, a, a square foot on 42nd Street or Wall Street sells, rents for a lot higher, and sells for a lot higher than a square foot in Sheboygan. Because a lot of people want to be there, and not many people, some people, but not as many people want to be in Sheboygan. People want to be in concentrated, dense areas. Now, those who don't are fortunate then if if the space is left for them by the people who do want to congregate, so they got more wide open space because of the freedom to, to do that. But it is not, you should not have an image in your mind, which it's easy, you know, I have them too. All these people, the Ukrainians are coming into Poland and everybody is like this, pressed up like on the New York City subway. No. It's not like that. It's an economic benefit. It advances the division of labor. It makes people happy that they are now with a lot of other productive people. And it's, it works out to everyone's interest. The other thing is the impotence of evil. If you are restrictionist, I don't mean you, if, you're, if a country is a restrictionist country, and wants to deprive itself of immigrants, it's hurting itself, it's weakening itself economically, it's falling behind technologically, it's uh, therefore less potent. Like Putin, how many of you thought that Russia, this huge dictatorship with, you know, hundreds of millions of robust people all loving Putin, would have no trouble in overcoming Ukraine. I didn't. I thought Ukraine might well do what the Japanese did to Russia in 1905, what the Finns did to Russia in around the same time. I'm sorry, Finns, I don't know the exact date. Evil is impotent. Dictatorship is irrational. The orders that are given make no sense. You have to lie to the dictator. And you remember Putin was lied to about how easy it would be? Because who wants to tell the dictator you're going to be unhappy? No, you'll be, this is, we're great. Our army is fantastic. I'm the head of this greatest army in the world. They don't have a chance against us. And you would be very thrilled with the results. You, you can't be honest with the dictator. So. Irrationality is not strong, it's weak, it's stupidity, it's blindness, 
It's emotionalism. Hitler had an astrologer that he consulted about his battles. He had an astrologer. It turned out that astrologer was planted on him by the English, but <laughs> even if he didn't, even if they hadn't been, it, the irrational is not the strong, it's the weak. Okay, so there's no problem such as you allude to. Thank you very much. Okay. Hi, Dr. Vince Wanger. Um, first of all, thank you for your talk. I am a proud immigrant, recent immigrant, five years here. Uh, also an aspiring uh, new objectivist intellectual, so thank you for your talk and for defending immigration. Thank you, Augustine. Um, so I have a question, uh, two points about the voting problem that you mentioned. Uh, you, you put as a solution like uh, not giving immigrant citizenship uh, until 25 years have passed since they arrived in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Or ever. Or I, ever. I'm open to ever, but... Um, so, what about other rights other than, than voting that come with a, with a citizenship? For instance, diplomatic protection abroad, which may not be afforded by the country of origin of that person, especially if they come from a uh, totalitarian regime. And then a second point on uh, immigration, on uh, voting. What do you think of the following? Because this is the way I think about it. I don't think the problem is that immigrants vote Democrat, but that we have two parties that are just terrible. So the Democrats have all these, these proposals and policies that are so similar to the things that we are escaping, right? Yeah. From, especially from countries like Latin America. But then the Republicans hate us. Yeah. They want us out of here. They don't, yeah. want, they, they don't want us here. So it's an impossible choice. So yeah. some people just choose to be like, okay, I would rather vote Democrat, which is never going to be as bad, or hopefully never going to be as bad as Venezuela, Argentina, what have you, than both Republican who want to just absolutely kick me out. So what do you think? Yeah, I, I'm also not against voting Democratic. It's not like, oh, well, we want to have more... Uh, Roe v. Wade overturns and January 6 attempted coups. So it'd be terrible if there were Democrats got in. I think we need right now some Democratic votes. But in general, it, the Democrats have a history of being worse, uh, and I'm sure they'll it will revert to that soon. But this is. Um, I just don't see this as a problem, and I, I see it as a way to challenge the Democrats. There are you know, a lot of Republicans who say the Democrats want to admit everybody because they'll vote Democratic. And so the Republicans should simply say, if you're sincere about immigration and you're not just looking a way to get votes, what if we let them in and don't let them vote? Now, what are the Democrats going to say? Oh, no, that's a violation of, you know, this and that and the other. But it would kind of make them have the egg on their face that they are uh, in favor of immigration only because people will vote Democratic. So I think the proposal to let them, do you want to come in if you can't vote? And if they say, oh, no, I'd rather stay out than not be able to vote, okay. But none of them are going to say that. So uh, it, it solves the problem on both sides that they come in but not, not allowed to vote. Um, I don't think those other things, you know, diplomatic 
protection abroad. Is that a big deal? Would anybody not come here because they didn't get that? And I'm not sure how much the America should do for um, non-military uh, issues abroad, like someone goes abroad and he's mugged and he has to go to a bad court abroad because our courts can't protect him. The other country has sovereignty. So I'm not sure, I've discussed this with people and I'm not sure that there's any real legitimate role other than if an attack is made that requires us to respond militarily. Remember the Maya Gez and some of these other things where our military was attacked, or it amounted to that, um, I think we have to stand up for ourselves then, uh, which we rarely do, tragically. So I don't think that's a real consideration. I mean, we're talking about people dying in trailers because they're so desperate to get in here. And I mean, that, those, that story is from last week. It's not like this is some new, rare thing. It goes on all the time. People are paying coyotes a large amount of monies. The coyotes don't care because of the law system. So, you know, they won't be protected if they go to France. Okay. I don't see that as an issue. Thank you. Really appreciate the talk, Dr. Binswanger. So uh, my question is a hypothetical sort of clarification. Um, if there were a bill, let's say, before Congress to substantially open borders, but it didn't include the paired decontrol that you discussed in your talk, is that something you would still support? Probably, but it would depend upon the measurements. You know. How much immigration, uh, from what countries, under what terms? I generally, you know, I didn't have to be dragged into being pro-immigration. I had to be dragged down from the kind of out of context desire to have it regard come hell or high water. So uh, I probably would support almost anything to uh, increase it. Incidentally, uh, you know, I didn't get into statistics in the talk, but it's, it's kind of interesting and surprising to me that the percentage of the country that were immigrants in 1900 and the percentage that are immigrants in 1910, uh, 2010, 110 years later, is almost exactly the same. It's about 13 or 14 percent. Now, it did go down, like the, the bottom was 1970, it was about 6% of the country were immigrants. But it's, there's, uh, at least as of 1910, and it's been lower since then, uh, there hasn't been a wave. Now, this year will be something different because of what's going on <clears throat> with the <clears throat> proper relaxation of controls of the Biden administration. But, you know, another thing I haven't gone into is that uh, I am personally uh, donating to the cause of a person who's trying to get into the country uh, to be a new intellectual who is very well qualified, very upstanding character, an amazing person. And he's been waiting for 
what is it? Um, he applied for a visa uh, in November, late November. He's still in processing now. And we have heard that people in his situation sometimes have to wait two to four years. At the end of that time, they're often admitted. Yeah, you can have a visa. And it's just a visa to be here for a year or two. But the agony that it puts people through is unbelievable. It's, it's hideous. Thank you. Um, would you support open borders between two neighboring countries um, with a history of war between them and tense relations and c attempts of control over the other country? Uh, it depends upon how real the threat is. If, if it's just, I mean, every country in Europe, this shocked me when I learned it, every country in Europe hates its neighbor. I thought to me that the, the Swedes hate the Finns was the reductio ad absurdum, but they do. And uh, the Greeks hate the Macedonians uh, because they have this history. I knew, the, the Scots hate the English. The Cornish, who are part of England, hate the non-Cornish English. <laughs> There's such racism, uh, or xenophobia, or whatever you want to call it, based upon a collectivist philosophy and a history, uh, that it's shocking. Uh, and I think the more you open up the borders, the more that goes away. So I think it's a good restorative if there is more exchange, people intermarry, if they come into contact with each other, children intermarry, and that uh, helps relations. So, but you know, if you're talking about Israel and the Arab countries, that is war. So it depends upon whether there's probable cause, whether there's an objective threat of military issues, force. Thank you. Mm -hmm. This is a question from one of the viewers on the live stream. What is your response to the objection that if we don't grant voting rights to immigrants, it will lead to their political disenfranchisement and exploitation? Uh, I don't know what it means. Of course, they'll be disenfranchised. That's what it means to be, <laughs> not have a vote. They start as disenfranchised. They don't have the franchise. Uh, and they agree to that, to come in. Now, ultimately, you know, once we get to something close to Reichsland, uh, you would drop that, and it would be the go back to the five years that it has been in the U.S. to be naturalized. Um, but as an interim thing to calm the fears, it is it is a compromise with the ideal, but it moves us towards the ideal. It's okay to accept a tactical compromise if you win by it, if you're moving closer to freedom. I can't make that as a blanket statement, but at least in other things being equal, if you can make a compromise, okay, cut my income tax 50%. Now, really, there shouldn't be an income tax. In fact, there shouldn't be any tax at all. 
would you say, well, don't, don't ask for 50%. Don't accept 50%. It's a sellout. It's a compromise. No, of course not. Are you moving in the direction of freedom? So, uh, yeah, uh, it would be um, a disenfranchisement, but it, did you say it would lead to exploitation? I don't see any. What exploitation is there because you can't vote? I mean, only, uh, what is it, about 40% of the eligible voters do vote normally? So, uh, no, I don't see any danger there at all. So, uh, next live stream question or next? Uh, let's go back to the line. Okay. Um, so, on this paired decontrolled method, not just in the context of immigration, what do you do about a case where one side is more politically feasible than the other? Do you just abandon both sides? Like, I assume for most of your paired decontrols, you could get a lot more support for the immigration side than for the other side, for most of the ones that you listed today in the current political context. So how does that fit into your view of this being yeah, a really path? I don't think that, but there, you're getting at a, a certain point, uh, which is when we talk about what you favor, what is the context? Are you the king of the country that you can just, if you know what's right, you can just do it? And even kings can't do that, in fact, because there'd be a rebellion beyond a certain amount. Uh, or are you saying what you should go out and proselytize about? That's, that's a question that I myself had. Uh, and I think what we're saying is that these are proposals which if you could get them through okay. would be better. Right, okay. So it's something to um, argue for that we should do. Uh, uh, some of these are, are very unpopular, like immigration, doubling immigration is very unpopular. Um, cutting spending 20% is more. Cutting spending 20%, I don't really think so, but I think abolishing the Department of Education would be more because, I mean, I could tell you a story about Proposition 13 in California, but I'm afraid that would take too much time. But. The educational establishment fights tooth and nail. I don't think the parents are necessarily so sold on the public schools. And you know, it's a joke when they say, well, if the immigrants come in, they're going to send their kids to the public schools. They shouldn't. <laughs> terrible. They're awful. You shouldn't send them to public schools. They should homeschool them or set up you know, group private schools. Put them on the internet. I mean, you know, say, here's your computer. Go learn what you think you need, or what I tell you you need, uh, because they don't know. Uh, but almost anything would be better than the public schools, which are prisons for kids. And, and the school shootings are a result of how horrible the whole public education system is. Thank you. So I don't think that things. You'd be surprised at what really is popular and what really is unpopular. I know I would. Yeah. So um, uh, there are. Wait, a lot wait, of wait, wait! I just thought I have to say something. Yeah, no problem. Uh, but I'm just going to. 
you'd be surprised at what you can get through or what you couldn't. In the Clinton administration, he passed the PRWORA, which said no new arrival, no immigrant can get any form of federal welfare for five years. Now, I would have said, you can't pass that. People are going to say, but these people are in need. Now, eventually, that went away. It had a sunset law, and it wasn't repealed. But for 10 or 12 years, the law was the federal government will not give food stamps, will not give this, will not give that to anyone for five years if you come here. So it does surprise you what can be passed sometimes and what can't. Now. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so um, um, I... I like immigration myself as well, also for uh, because of personal experience and also because of studying economics. But um, there are also, I think, a lot of free market or laissez-faire economists out there who would share the same vision of, of rights land as you propose it. But they would say that um, the, how, the exclusion process they would go a different way about it. They would say, okay, um, we go from uh, st uh, country border, uh, federal borders to state borders to uh, city borders to um, yeah. community borders. What, what would be your I'm, I'm of against that argument? That. That's the, the anarchist libertarians, mm -hmm. uh, of which the economists are a big portion believe that local power is better, and they want to take it than national power. I'm the reverse. A conceptual mind is an integrating mind, and it's better to have bigger areas than smaller areas. But you don't want one world, because then there's no escape. But short of that, it is better to have a federal government than to have state government, that is, the federal government is a better form of government than the states. And I say this based upon people who, who are lawyers and newspaper reporters covering state politics. It's much more corrupt than federal. State court is much more subject to demanding bribes than the federal system, according to a lawyer who's done both. <clears throat> uh, the petty, you know, my son-in-law is going to be involved here, gets bigger when you get to the local area. So I'm in favor of bigger agglomerations. I'm in favor of the federal power. I'm against, there is no such thing as states' rights, if you're talking philosophically. Uh, but um, in general, it's better to have one big anonymous government than to have the little local guys. Now you want to take it down to anarchy to you defend your own rights. You have your own law. You are the state for yourself. And that's, you know, worse than dictatorship. Ayn Rand said that anarchy is worse than dictatorship. And she'd experienced both. She was in anarchy when she was in the Crimea and they were fighting over it uh, as a teenager. The you know so the Bolsheviks and the whites were fighting, and she wouldn't know 
the next morning, which had won the control of her area. And of course, she lived under the Soviets. So I'm not a fan of anarchy. So, so you would say uh, the best thing for the world would be um, uh, a couple of countries that are similarly organized to the United States? Well, that would be going too far. I think okay. you, you need uh, about what we have, you know, maybe 200 countries. Uh, I don't see that Monaco and the Vatican need to be countries, but I don't know. I'm open on that. I'm just saying it's the, to have the United States and, and to have had the European Union, if it weren't so leftist, was better than not having it. But Britain was right. The UK was right to leave because they were leftist, not because it was big. So... Uh, that's a, uh, a boring answer to a good question. Thank you. <laughs> Harry, I've been coming to these conferences for decades. This is one of the best talks ever. Trust me. Wonderful. Thank you. It's, you're just being selfish. <laughs> in a way, in a way. Um, my question is, on the 25-year moratorium on the right to vote, uh, would it be possible to have an ironclad limited republic where nobody can vote for the rights of others to be violated and therefore allow uh, foreigners yesterday, Americans today, to vote immediately when they come into the country since they can't vote for, for the government to violate the rights of others? Um. So if you had that, we'd have Reichsland. So what would Reichsland's naturalization procedure be? I think it's reasonable to require um, a certain period of time to adjust to the new system and to understand what you would be voting for. If you come into a country and you don't know that much about what it's about, I don't think that you should be voting. And also, we don't know that you intend to stay there. Somebody's here for a year, or in Reichslands for a year, maybe he's going to go somewhere else. He hasn't, for instance, when you come to own land, when you first you have use rights on it, and you file a claim, you have to occupy it permanently for, I think it's five years to show that you intend to use it permanently and you're not just passing through. And it's the same kind of thing. So some minimum, whether it's three years or 10 years, is required for objectivity. Perhaps you would like to share with today's audience your calculations on what the population density in the United States would be if oh. half the world population would come here tomorrow. Yes, I, you can find that on my website, <clears throat> hpletter.com in the blog. If half the world came here, the population of the country would be the same as New Jersey, the density, average. And that's not having them live on lakes, 
You know, that's the land surface area. And it's not even including, I believe I didn't include Alaska and Hawaii. I know I didn't include Hawaii. Um, and it would be less than some countries like Holland and Benelux. <clears throat> the United States is vastly underpopulated. When you fly, some of you flew across the country to get here, and you see it's just trees and farms. And then you finally you get to a city, and the cities are very impressive, but it's basically a lot of forest. Incidentally, we have more forest in the country now than we did 30, 40, 50 years ago. So the myth of, oh, we're cutting down all the trees is a myth. So, uh, yeah, that's... Um, what I have to say about population density, you can find it in uh, open borders or open immigration uh, on my blog, Value for Value, at hbletter.com. You'll see a tab, blog, the first tab, Value for Value, and there's a directory, and you can search it for it. But I make the calculations, which, are, you know, I just use the web to get the surface area, land area of the countries, and divided the population up into it. And we've got a lot of room. So I think we're at the end. Uh, Anu? Oh, because you took the time. Good. So we, we can take your question. Okay. Um. I noticed in your talk one of the objections to open borders that you mentioned was, we don't want more people. And in Ankar's talk, the objection to uh, abortion was, we want more people. So that's an obvious <laughs> contradiction. <laughs> yes. I, did, I had to miss that because I had to put the finishing touches on these slides. Right. So I didn't hear Ankar. So, but yeah. Ankar made a great point. Wait, but, but uh, he said the people who oppose immigration because we don't we don't we don't know what they're do they oppose having babies you know uh, well wait a minute you're having a third baby he's going to consume resources he's going to take jobs he's going to overcrowd us maybe you'll be a criminal <laughs> a lot of babies turn out to be criminals you know <laughs> nobody thinks of that, that that's a great in individualist way of looking at it my my question is isn't it's the same issue uh, across both of these issues and a lot of our disputes that we do not have a clear legislative definition of rights and uh, a definition of to whom they apply. And we probably could use a constitutional amendment defining that with a clause saying um, overriding anything that contradicts that, that, that sort of an amendment. Shouldn't, well, you know, Tara Smith wrote a book on constitutional interpretation, uh, at arguing that originalism isn't the thing. The thing is a philosophically informed uh, application of the principles that the founders put in place. So that uh, if there are contradictions, you can re remove them. And that's, that's what you're saying, that the original system was one based upon rights, and the Declaration should be incorporated into the Constitution, at least the opening of it, as the, the, that should have been the preamble, not 
in order to form a more perfect union and so forth. So, um, yes, we need that, and the only way we're going to get it is if everyone increases their donation to the Ayn Rand Institute. <laughs> really. I guess I'm the last one. Um, being an immigrant from Odessa, Ukraine, I just I want to express my appreciation for everything you said. Uh, and I do have a question. Uh, you mentioned that you prefer federal government to state governments. Isn't it good to have a choice of uh, states and different ways they run? Yes. Uh, the states yes. like Florida versus New York or California. Yes. And now I can. It gives me. You know, I agree with that. I don't. I'm not advocating an end to the federal system, but I'm just saying that the going the other way is asking for trouble. Um, I was surprised to learn, you know, that there's an influx of re refugees from New York into Florida, where I live, and we're worried, you know, it's going to turn woke. It's going to turn Florida. And the truth is, and this is in, on political, the truth is Florida is turning more of a red state. Not that that's necessarily a good thing, but just in terms of what, how this stuff works. It's the red state thinking, you know, I don't want to, let's say conservatives. It's the conservative, more people who are conservative who want to leave New York for Florida and leave California for Texas. The people who are really the progressives love what's happening there, and uh, so they stay. So it's the best people, the people most in favor of more freedom who are coming, and for the first time, Republican registrations outnumber Democrats in Florida, and it's growing daily. So that is applicable to when people come from Mexico or uh, Russia, whatever, it is not a given that they're going to bring with them the cultural values that made those societies stink. Well, Mexico is not equivalent to Russia, but it's bad. They leave because they're better than that society and they're adventuresome and want to make money and want to be free. So you, it refreshes the American spirit when you have immigration, even from bad countries. And, you know, look at Miami. It's all Cuban and it's all Republican because they saw what communism was and the same with Venezuelans. Uh, so, it can have a, an unexpectedly good result to have immigration from the countries. Oh my God, no, they shouldn't come here. The good people come here. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.